Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Um, today we're here for Clementine Ford for her book, Fight Like a Girl. <laughs> it, she said to when we were talking about what she should do, you know, what should this amazing woman do? She said, should I read something emotional or, or like out there? I'm like, out there, read, read what's out there. Okay, so um, she's come all the way from Australia, a beautiful country, so we're so very happy that she's here. She'll read for about 20 minutes and then she'll be joined by Alexandra Tweeten for her book, By Felipe. So, this uh, is Dick Picks and Other Delights of Modern Dating. So, we also have copies of her books available that you can also pick up. But um, at this time, please welcome Clementine. Thanks so much, Noelle. Um, Australians are terribly self-deprecating people, so you said that beautiful thing about having the best writers come here, and I almost piped up with something self-deprecating, so I'm glad that I bit my tongue. Um, thank you so much to Skylight Books for having me and for all of you for coming out tonight. I've been so sick with nerves about this because it's like a big thing to come from a tiny little country like Australia to the big city. Um, so thank you. I appreciate it. Um, I'm going to read... Two excerpts. The first is from a chapter called Man Hater. <clears throat> In the 15 or so years that I've been actively feministing, I've never tired of being asked whether or not I hate men. When I say I've never tired of it, I am, of course, lying. If I could summarise my experience of the anti-feminist backlash into one tedious, repetitive interaction, it would be thus. Do you hate men? Wait, let me rephrase that. Why do you hate men? Although my care factor for whether or not men think I hate them hovers somewhere just below zero, and I will teach readers how to adjust their scale similarly, the blatant lack of self-awareness on display when this question is asked, and asked, and asked, and asked repeatedly on and on into infinity, still manages to astonish me. Here's a sample of some of the things that have been said to me by men distressed by the thought that feminism might not be a political movement that advocates for gender equality, but just a club for ugly chicks to hate on blokes. Misandrist, man-hater, feminazi boner killer, joyless harpy, jealous of the prettier girls, dumb fat cow, ugly femo, sour-faced wrinkled bitch who's only angry about rape because no one would ever rape her. I should probably just put a little disclaimer that there is a trigger warning for mentions of rape in all of this book. Wants to kill all men, but only because no man would ever touch her. Hope you like living alone, bitch, because no one's ever going to want to put up with an ugly, angry cunt like you. Lose some weight, you fat heifer. Clemmy's growing a moustache. She must be transitioning. She's been drinking so many men's tears, she's turning into one. Did the doctor build that vagina for you, bitch? That bitch is as ugly as a dead dog on the side of the road. I bet no one's even pierced your virgin, smelly asshole until you cried, you ugly cunt. Fix your teeth, fix your face, go on a diet, get over your fucking victim complex, stop being such an angry, irrational cunt all the time. Are you a sociopath? You have major mental health issues. You're a sick, twisted individual. You bathe in men's tears. Do you bathe in the tears of Tom Ma? Tom Ma is the husband of a woman who was um, raped and murdered in Melbourne, where I live. You must have loved the Paris bombings. Think of all those murdered boys and men whose tears you can bathe in now. You're a cunt. I hope you get raped by someone with AIDS. Fuck you, you fucking man-hating dyke. Do feminists hate men? When you consider the level of hostility women are subjected to just for standing up for ourselves, surely the better query is, why do so many men seem to hate women so fiercely, so aggressively, so violently, and so passionately? As pertinent as this question might be, it's rarely asked in response to the knee-jerk paranoia around feminism and what it supposedly means. Instead, feminists and non-feminists, or as I call them, dickheads, alike funnel endless reams of energy into debating the utterly pointless question of whether or not feminists are required by law to hate all men 
as if answering this will reveal the secret key to unlocking real gender, in, uh, gender equality. In actual fact, this boring, trivial fixation is nothing more than an effective means of constantly diverting any attention away from feminism's success, potential or actual, and directing it towards feeding society's obsession with placating men at all times. That misogynists, both the out and proud ones, and the ones still hiding in the closet, are able to effortlessly wave away the comprehensive evidence feminists have for women's oppression in the world is a feat in and of itself. That they manage to do it while also elevating themselves in the violation of their feelings as a more legitimate and unconscionable form of oppression is nothing short of remarkable. Oh, you think that domestic violence is a terrible scourge, do you? You think it's an outrage that almost two women in Australia are murdered weekly by aggrieved partners or ex-partners and that the all-too-common response to this is, well, why didn't she leave? Instead of, why did he kill her? You think it's astonishing how few people know that the most dangerous time for a woman in a situation of intimate partner violence is the period immediately after leaving? You think we should be horrified that one woman is hospitalised every three hours in Australia as a result of gendered violence? You think we should be outraged that Aboriginal women are 80 times more likely to make up these numbers? You think we should shine a light on misogyny and take a united stand against abuse? You think we should do that instead of perpetrating, perpetuating it by insisting that sexist jokes are hilarious, that there's no link between the way society views women and the way society discards them, that perpetrators of violence couldn't possibly be influenced by the world they live in, a world that shits on women regularly and valorises the strong, heroic man who sits at the top of the food chain? Well, why don't you care about the men who are victimised too, you bitch? Oh, you think that girls and women shouldn't be blamed for their own sexual assaults, as if they have the right to exist peacefully in their own skin without having to give up something, like their autonomy or dignity or fucking right to free agency. You think girls should be allowed to wear what they want, as if it's somehow men's responsibility to control themselves around women, instead of women's responsibility to fend off temptation? You think women should be allowed to sleep with one man, and this freedom doesn't mean they have an obligation to sleep with his friends? You think we should consider it cause for major concern that one in five girls over the age of 15 will experience sexual violence in her lifetime? You think girls of colour shouldn't be excluded from the protection all adults, adults should afford to all children, that they shouldn't be described as fast-tailed or having dressed older? You think women with intellectual disabilities should expect to be treated with dignity and sexual respect? That we should be utterly disgusted to sit with the knowledge that over 90% of them have been subjected to some form of sexual violence? You think that the sexual assault of girls and women shouldn't be treated as some kind of unfortunate byproduct of being alive, but the symptom of a diseased society which views women's bodies as expendable commodities to be used, thrown away, and then blamed for being on display in the first place? You think men should be held to a higher standard than that? Well, answer me this, feminazi. Why do you paint all men as rapists? You think that women shouldn't be ridiculed for speaking openly about their experiences in the world? You think that people should actually have to listen to women when they speak and be open to the possibility of learning something? You think women might have something of value and insight to say about what sexism looks like and how it presents itself? You don't think that we can just rely on men to be able to define sexism for us and insist that their interpretation of our experience is the correct one? You think that most men have no idea what sexism feels like, that most of them think it's just the same as them getting upset over being lumped in with the really bad men. You know, the ones who girls and women have a responsibility to always, constantly and vigilantly protect themselves from, but are also never allowed to talk about because that might make other men, the good men, feel bad. Wait a minute, you think sexism actually exists in the Western world and isn't just the province of those backward countries where women are really oppressed? Countries where really oppressed women understand and experience real oppression, like men telling them what they should and shouldn't wear in order to avoid being exploited and assaulted, where men occupy the majority of positions of power, where the voices of men are amplified while the voices of women are silenced, where women are killed by men all the time. You know, the kind of oppression women in the West apparently don't experience at all, and yet show no appreciation for being spared. You know, like the kind of oppressive behaviour that can be solely blamed on brown men and that allows white Western men to feel safe and insulated from having to get engage with their own racism and patriarchal complicity and com criminal behaviour. You actually think that we should listen to women when they speak about this stuff instead of just laughing at them or telling them to get over it or calling them vile, abusive names until they understand that their oppression is made up because men here are nice and women would be wise to remember that. Well, you should see what we could do to you if we wanted to, you ungrateful bitch.
You know what? Some women do hate men. They have good reason to. They might have been raped and beaten and downtrodden and abused, and they've reached their breaking point. They might have lived a nightmare you can't even conceive of. To these women, men might represent the enemy because the role they have played in these women's lives, a role that might involve sexual abuse, exploitation, emotional manipulation, and perhaps even attempts to kill them, has consistently shown themselves to be exactly that. If these women hate men, who is how is anyone to blame them? Other women may not hate men, but just marginally despise them. They have good reason to as well. They might have been undermined and devalued their entire lives. They might have been told their womanhood makes them inherently weaker than men and been forced to, to sit and endure quietly as their freedom contracted in correlation with the, with the inverse expansion of the boys around them. They might have been told, do this, and given no explanation for why such drudgery should become their responsibility, aside from, because it's women's work. These women might have wondered why their brothers were allowed to stay out late and roam the streets while they were kept indoors because it's not safe for you. Later, they might wonder why, if safety was such an important consideration for girls, they never heard their parents talk to brothers about not hurting women. These women watched as the boys around them ascended to thrones built of privilege, and it made them sick to realise these boys believed they'd earned their coronations. Still others may not hate or despise men at all. They might love men, and they might be able to do this while recognising the extraordinary advantages that men in general, particularly the white, middle-class, cis, heterosexual ones, enjoy over everyone else, often in tandem with the denial that these advantages exist at all. These women who love men, the women who enjoy the presence of their husbands, fathers, brothers, sons, cousins, friends, colleagues, the man who serves them coffee at their local, the Uber driver they spoke to last night, might also express frustration and anger over the times men do treat them with the same, do not treat them with the same level of respect. They might rant when a man tells them to lighten up when they complain about sexist commentary. They might fume when a man tells them that instead of complaining about street harassment and tarring all men with the same brush, that they should be flattered by it because it's a compliment. These women who love and adore the men in their lives and recognise the potential for goodness that exists in all men might still feel like crying sometimes because for all the love they offer the world's men, the hate those men are capable of offering back can be heartbreaking and soul-destroying. Instead of berating feminists for being misandrists, perhaps these men should start taking responsibility for the abominable, destructive and dehumanising treatment of women throughout all of history up to and including the present day. Because here's the thing, at a broad sweep, men have given us countless reasons to hate them. They have certainly provided ample evidence of their hatred for us, and the violence they inflict has more physical, cultural, and economic power behind it than women subjugated by a patriarchal system could ever hope to replicate. Despite all of this, most of us don't hate men. Most of us still engage with men on a substantial level, choosing to befriend them, marry them, create families with them, become mothers to them. We choose to love them, but we are allowed to love ourselves as well. Yet when we engage in this radical act of self-love, unashamedly, open and fearlessly, we are asked, why do you hate men? Why do we hate men? Again, the better question to ask is, why do men hate us and why do they hate us so much? I'm just going to skip forward to a chapter called It's Okay to Be Angry. Before you reach the end of this book, I need to tell you one of the most important things I've learned in my 35 years on earth as a human being woman person. In fact, if you take just one message away from this book, then I hope it's this one, because it might just be the cornerstone of everything. It's one of the hardest lessons for us to learn, but I urge you to embrace it. May it fill your heart and soul, and may it keep you warm at night. May it carve itself in letters large across the breadth of your whole mind. Are you ready? It's okay for you to be angry. Revolutionary, right? All these years, people have been calling you angry as if it's a shameful thing, when what they really mean is, your refusal to be contained frightens me. It's okay for you to be angry. 
It's okay for you to be angry because you are a human being who lives in the world and you are goddamn allowed to be angry about some of the things that happen here. It's okay for you to be angry because you have blood, bones and a beating heart and these things are messy and powerful and full of life. It's okay for you to be angry because being angry is not illegal, no matter how much it might make other people uncomfortable. It's okay for you to be angry because you're a woman and the world has given you a lot of fucking shit to be angry about. It's okay for you to be angry. To a world that instructs women to be passive and conciliatory, anger is a terrifying thing. Anger is unpredictable. It's uncontrollable. People are afraid of women's anger because they're afraid of confronting its source. Inequality, violence, degradation, dehumanization, misogyny. If you don't want to accept that these things exist, you won't want to accept the validity of women's feelings of rage about them. And so it becomes much easier for those invested in the status quo to do what they've always done when faced with the extremity of women's emotions, and that's to pathologize them. Women who express anger are recast as mythically terrifying creatures, hysterical banshees, harpies, fishmongers' wives, squawking, screeching, shrieking she-beasts making the world unpleasant for everyone around them. We are grotesque, monstrous mountains of rage, engorged and swollen with our own irrational delusions about the state of the world. We are ugly, and this is perhaps the most criminal aspect of our existence, because we're told that it's this ugliness that makes us so angry in the first place and causes us to lash out. In this reading of women's anger, our exclusion from the system has not been caused by the system itself, but by the insufficiency of our own physicality. If we were pretty on the outside, we would be pleasant on the inside. If we were thin, we wouldn't have so much room inside as to harbour so much t hate and toxicity. If we took more pride in our appearance instead of being lazy, grisly, fat, disgusting, ugly, angry old bitches, then men would want us. And if men wanted us, all our dissatisfaction and rage over being passed over would disappear and we would recognise just how wonderful this prison we live in really is. From the time we're born until the time we die, girls and women are taught to be the simpering, smiling backdrop to the greater purpose of men's achievements. Men rule the world while women decorate it. We aren't granted the flexibility of being able to play characters who can be complicated, messy, irreverent, assertive, admired and angry. These roles are reserved for men. We're expected to be their support in every way. We are the women they fight over, the women they lust after, the women who encourage them and the women who applaud them. We are the stage on which they stand, the curtains that signal for silence or applause, the scenery that forms the backdrop to their adventures, the swelling music that heralds their success. Why are you so angry? I'm angry that this is even a question because implicit in it is the suggestion that women have nothing to be angry about. It's so easy to stand within a system that favours you so completely that your privilege can no longer even be seen and yet still have the arrogance to argue that those burdened by it are behaving unreasonably. Instead of responding to the legitimate grievances of half the world's population, the half that is marginalised, abused, discriminated against and oppressed, the responsibility to engage is shrugged off and once again turned into an issue of oversensitivity. Why am I angry? I'm angry because, as I said, one in five girls over the age of 15 will experience sexual violence, and yet the rape culture we raise them in leads them to believe this is somehow their fault. I'm angry because these same girls will hesitate to tell anyone what happened to them, because if they don't already believe they caused it to happen, they're afraid that other people will. I'm angry because girls and women are raped by groups of boys and men who, who take over their precious bodies as a grotesque exercise in bonding and yet are still later protected and defended by a community that wants to believe it's women who, it is women who set out to ruin the lives of promising future leaders. I'm angry because the concept of consensual sex is so poorly understood by a world that favours male sexual dominance to the point where rape is excused all the time and yet some people still react to the proposition of further education around consent with conspiracy theories about how the bedroom is being overrun by red tape and bureaucracy. I'm angry because women are groped on the streets or in bars and told that they have to accept these interactions as compliments. I'm angry because women are raped every day in their homes by their partners, family members or friends, and yet people still think that avoiding rape is as simple as just saying no. I'm angry because f when feminists talk about rape, men tell us that we're just upset that no one wants to rape us. 
I'm angry because women who commit the egregious crime of being fat while raped are even more likely to be disbelieved because why would anyone rape a fat chick? I'm angry because women of colour, trans women and women with disabilities suffer significantly higher rates of male perpetrated sexual violence than almost anyone else, yet are given significantly lower levels of support across the board. I'm angry because I've lost count of the number of women who have contacted me to tell me about the men who've raped them and got away with it. And I'm angry because so many of these women are my friends. The examples I've given here are just a drop in the ocean of pain that some women spend a lifetime swimming through, just trying to find their way to safe land. These are real assaults and oppressions. This is a real culture of crime and degradation. If history did bother to document the lives of women, it would be written with the ink of tears that have flown since the beginning of time, flowed since the beginning of time. It's okay to be angry. We need to get over the stigma of what it means to be an angry woman. We've been taught to fear the label and all that it represents, which is supposedly a kind of hyper-emotional femaleness that lacks perspective and rationality. But our anger is not irrational. It's very concentrated and sensible, and it's a response to the pain of those thousands of years of oppression and male supremacy. It doesn't mean we're blazingly angry all the time. I mean, even I give myself a break now and then to watch The Bachelor. My anger is not always explosive, but it's always with me, and it means I'm paying attention. Thank you. Hello. That was wonderful. Thank you. Um, it was probably... It was very angry. <laughs> Sorry, I should That's have given okay. the trigger warning early on. It was kind of intense. <laughs> um, I'm super excited to be here, and I'm super excited to be on stage with you. Um, for anyone who doesn't know uh, what Bye Felipe is, it's an Instagram I started in 2014, and um, it calls out men who turn hostile when rejected or ignored. And Why do you hate men so much? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so when I found out that you were coming to LA, I was so excited. And um, I guess I'll just... Um, oh, I wanted to talk about the ways in which our books are sort of very similar. Um, well, we both deal with essentially men's inability to deal with rejection yes um to deal with women speaking back to them and like broken masculinity yes um we sort of both come to the conclusion that patriarchy is the reason and <laughs> toxic masculinity and all of these and yeah. all of these things so and like patriarchy is a real thing but it's really hard to explain it to people who don't either have a working understanding of it or who are really resistant to engaging with it because it's not something that you can see, you know, it's exactly. like a gas. Exactly. It's, and I feel like, you know, it's true that patriarchy hurts men and um, it doesn't hurt them in exactly the same way that it hurts women, but it does, it does hurt men and it does limit men's ability to kind of express themselves fully in a world that demands of them. Um, you know, there's this great line in Bell Hooks's um, book, the will to change. I'm just yes, yes. on that. <laughs> uh, but she basically, she talks about how the first act that patriarchy demands of men is not violence towards women, but violence towards themselves. Exactly. And forces them to like excise the parts of themselves that don't fit. And if they won't do that, then patriarchy will, um, then they can rely on other men around them to enforce and police that patriarchy through um, rituals of humiliation. Um, I'm paraphrasing. Mm -hmm. But so men experience that harm, but then it's then expelled on women like tenfold. Exactly. Um, I, re I became aware of you um, years ago when someone um, just said, they saw my Instagram account and they were like, have you seen Clementine Ford? Have you heard of her? And I think um, I, I Googled you and I saw that uh, you had been also exposing the men and the trolls mm. that attack you because you you deal with a lot of um, abuse from 
random internet men who are very, very angry. Mm. And um, you uh, have gotten men fired before. and Yeah, that was a good time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you, have, you just have never, um, you know, you say that a lot of times it, it will make women just disappear and they will, you know, delete their Facebook yeah. or something. But... Um, we both have the mentality of, no, we're going to call it out and we're going to make you deal with what, what you've done. Yeah, because, I mean, so for anyone who doesn't know, which is probably all of you, I'm a columnist in Australia. I write a twice-weekly column for a newspaper and it's always been very feminist-focused. So, of course, you can imagine the kind of love letters that I receive from men every <laughs> week. Um and I feel like, yeah, you know, yeah, I've, I've gotten so many messages from women over the years who say that they engage in very polite, because women are socialised to be so polite. Exactly. Engage in very polite interactions with men on Facebook threads or whatever and just received this, like, onslaught of abuse and, and hatred back at, because the thought of, like, someone telling a man that he's wrong is a crime. Um, They're just so entitled. Yeah. They just think that... And whenever you contradict anything that they say they just lash out more yeah except we're the sensitive ones exactly right? we're hysterical yeah. <laughs> um and so often the response from these women has been to just shut down all of their accounts and yeah you know and actually even I don't know if it's the same here but in Australia when people say oh well you should go and report this to the police like yeah. the police are great at dealing with things you know the police do not um give any yeah shits. and the police are really unsafe for a lot of people um but also, like, you, you go and explain to them, um, I wrote this thing on the internet and mm -hmm. then someone emailed me from an anonymous account and told me to, you know, I won't list some of the more awful things that... And they're like, oh, well, maybe you should just close down your accounts, you know? Yeah, just get off the internet. Yeah, it's like, easy. that's a reality for... That's, <laughs> that's a possibility for people who live in a world where the internet is so essential to our lives and social media is so essential to people's work lives. Um, but, of course, it's always the responsibility of marginalised people to remove yeah. themselves from the situation because that's much easier than trying to change the behaviour of people who have been raised in privilege and entitlement. Um, I remember having an argument with a guy online once because I uh, was talking about victim blaming and saying that, you know, we need to start teaching men not to sexually assault women. It's like a radical idea. Um, and his, his response is really telling because I think it just exemplifies how people view men and white men in particular, their freedom just to walk through the world, is that he was like, oh, that's ridiculous. How do you, There's like 22 million people in Australia. So he was like, how do you expect to teach 11 million people not to do this one thing? And I was like, well, no one's ever had a problem with yeah. teaching women what they should and shouldn't wear, where they should and shouldn't walk. But this yeah. is the thing, is that like any man who stands in front of you and says, well, it's just it's just common sense. Like, women have to take responsibility for their movement through the world. They have mm -hmm. to take responsibility for what they wear and who they talk to. And if you say to them, okay, cool, so you're saying that I should be wary around you. You're saying that I shouldn't be alone with you after dark because you're a threat to me. And they're like, how dare you? How dare you suggest that I'm possibly a threat to you? They don't understand exactly. this, like, disconnect. So it's like the, the goalposts are constantly moving, which is what helps to keep us distracted because we're trying to figure out where the target yeah. is that's the thing is like you're you're wrong if you do the one thing and you're wrong if you do the opposite thing so yeah. you can't win as a woman you can't win there's a chapter in here called when will you learn and mm -hmm. I wrote it after um uh, a woman in 2012 was raped and murdered walking home from after work drinks one night very standard thing that we all do and that most of us do without any incident um, and this just happened to, you know, be a confluence of really bad luck and also this man having, like, an intense, deep hatred for women. But he kind of... The, the man who was ultimately arrested and is now serving time for that represents the most um, unusual of dangers mm -hmm. and yet the one that's cited as the most common one you know the stranger danger on the street and similarly after that incident and after one again that recently happened in Melbourne where a young comedian was walking home after work and um, was raped and murdered uh, like 900 meters from her home 
um, all of this like commentary came out afterwards about how women you just need to you need to be more aware. You know, the one of the police officers said that we all need to to practice situational awareness, and. Everyone always has something to say to women in the way that we move through the world whenever something terrible and high profile happens to us. And the reason it makes me so mad is because they act as if somehow we don't know all of this. Like, how many women in this room have known since before they even became a teenager that they needed to be careful when they were walking on the street at night? How many of you maybe walk with your keys through your fingers or you have, like, all these little mm -hmm. techniques or you're constantly aware? Like, the idea that somehow we don't practice situational awareness every second of every day when we are in a situation that potentially poses risk to us is ridiculous. And yet the worst part about it is the most dangerous places for us all are our homes. Exactly. Exactly. You um, bring up a thing that happens a lot um, where men are applauded and rewarded for like basically meeting the minimum standards of being a human being. <laughs> Um, why do you think it's a problem when women worry about making the good men feel attacked? Yeah. Because I think that it's... Um, uh, in America, do you have the White Ribbon Foundation? You probably have something similar. It's, it's a foundation in Australia that is essentially a corporate organisation that sells white ribbons on one day of the year and then men who do nothing for the rest of the year put it on and then they go to... Um, morning teas and they have like little ceremonies and all the morning teas are organized by women and the women like send out the invitations and they organize the food and they clean up after them and then men go on stage and they collect their <laughs> it's crazy isn't it um, and I feel like the 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 impulse that we have and that we've all been socialised to have to like constantly reward men for being basically okay humans is because we, we're taught to be afraid of what happens if we withdraw our like love and support for them. You know, like a man can stand up and say that he's a feminist and some women will literally throw their underwear at him. <laughs> Because that's what, we've been, that's what we've been conditioned to do. It's like, yeah. oh, my God, it's a man who thinks I'm basically a human being. I'll have babies with him. Um, and yet a woman stands up and says that she's a feminist and she gets, like, 100 rape threats. Um, and I think that, like, the longer we kind of, like, participate in that circle of um, reward and placating men, the further we remain from our goal. Because let's just say that we do reward and praise men like they're dogs mm -hmm. and we give them a little biscuit <laughs> when they do the right thing, then what happens when we get to the point where we supposedly have achieved this gender equality and we turn around and we say, okay, can we stop having the parades now? Can we stop with the medal ceremonies? Can we stop, like, giving you your biscuits whenever you do something good? Because I feel like what's going to happen then is they're going to turn around and say, well, that doesn't feel like equality to me. That mm -hmm. feels like you're being mean to me. Mm -hmm. And I... I mean, I thought you said feminism wasn't about superiority. So I just think that, like, ripping the Band-Aid off and being real and honest about what it is that's required of them and how they, they have to do so much more than just kind of nominally express support for women. I mean, maybe it's similar with your politicians here, that uh, in Australia the Conservative Party is called the Liberal Party. So when I talk about liberals, I'm not talking about progressive people. And it's... A, you know, incredibly white and uh, white cis male dominated kind of structure, as it is pretty much everywhere. Um, and you're, if you're a man in that party, you can stand up and say that you're a feminist and that you support women's rights because nothing is required of you to prove that, certainly not keeping women's refuges open um, or supporting, you know, targets for women's representation or anything like that but you can say that you're a feminist because it plays well with the community if you're a woman not like none of the women who are in the conservative party have ever identified as a feminist because the reaction that they get is so different and I don't care about conservative women being accepted or you know welcomed by their communities but I just think that it's kind of does speak to that <laughs> difference <laughs> yeah they can get fucked <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, another thing that we were talking about earlier was uh, the Louis C.K. thing and how we're just, how he thinks he can just 
come right back and we don't really punish men the same ways that we punish women who, you know, do bad things. Um, I remember the day that Louis C.K. wrote his non-apology. Yes. Where he, by the way, like wrote four times about how deeply admired he was, which was four times more than he said the word sorry. Um, and he... It was like for years he'd had these allegations directed towards him and he just always treated it like it was so beneath him to even acknowledge it, like it was distracting somehow, detracting from his genius and all these people who talked about him being this incredible genius. And he was such a, an amazing comic who just like really taps into the human experience. Um, and the day that he wrote that non-apology, I wrote something withering about it on Twitter and some guy responded and he was like, oh, he said sorry, what more do you want? <laughs> And I was like, that's literally, it's like there's a, an old joke. It's not my joke, but it's like, why did, um, why did the feminist man walk into the bar? Because it was set so low. Um, yeah. <laughs> and that's really, it's like the bar is, he, he said, sorry, what more do you want? Well, he didn't say sorry. And he literally like sexually harassed women for years in his community and got away with it while their careers suffered. And now he's, sort of acknowledged it happened. Oh, what more do you want? Yeah. And so then there was this other story that I was telling Alexandra today about like a few months after the Gorka, after Gorka initially uh, published allegations about Louis C.K. back in like 2014, um, that kind of happened around the same time as Daniel Tosh appeared at the Laugh Factory and the, the, the Laughs Factory, a factory La of laughs. Laughs Factory, yeah. And, <laughs> and responded to a woman who didn't like one of his, like, many, many jokes about rape um, by saying, pointing at her in the audience and saying, wouldn't it be hilarious if this woman got raped by, like, five guys right now? So edgy. And uh, he, you know, got, suffered this huge backlash. Of course, like, enjoyed... Uh, significant support from men in his industry, um, all of whom are terrified about the thought that they might not be able to tell a joke about anything that they like. Um, and CK was one of them. And he later claimed that he hadn't really been aware of what had happened at, at the Laugh Factory, the Laughs Factory, the Laugh Factory. Um, but he'd just been watching Tosh 2.0 on TV and he was like, it was so great. And so I just wanted to tweet my support to him. And so he's explaining this on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. And he says, you know, because Louis C.K. was always held up as like, well, he's the example of the man that can get away with telling a rape joke because it's just so clever and he's so in touch with humanity. And then he said to Jon Stewart, you know, I always think that you can just joke about anything, you know, whatever it is, the Holocaust, rape, whatever, ah, anything you can joke about, it's fine. But, you know, since this whole thing happened, I've been getting some emails from women and, like, they've made me realise that rape is something that polices women's lives. And, you know, I just didn't know that before, but, you know, like, I know that now, but I can still enjoy the rape jokes. This is his explanation. And I read that, and I was like, everyone holds this man up, as like, even before he admitted to being a sexual predator. Everyone holds this man up as being, like, this emblem of someone who is so deeply in touch with the human condition that he can, like, make really edgy jokes about it because he's such a good, good guy and he's so aware of everything in the world. But he was, like, born in, like, 1965 or 1967 or something like that. So by the time he appeared on The Daily Show, he'd lived for more than four decades and it had taken him that long to realise that rape is something that polices women's lives. And he needed to realise it because women had to write to him and do yeah. that work it's like, and let really? him know. You didn't know that? <laughs> yeah, and so this, so we live in this... You know, We were talking as well about mm -hmm. being in a post-Me Too era and how long that will actually last for because... In the same year, 2014, we had the Yes All Women hashtag, which happened after Elliot Roger shot all those people in Isla Vista because women wouldn't have sex with him. Um, and people at the time were like, oh, my God, I just can't believe that this is women's experience. It's just terrible. I just never knew. And then they just forgot about it. And then Me Too happened and they're like, oh, my God, I can't believe that this is women's experience. I just never knew. It's just, it's just so awful and bad so I just think like well how long is it going to take for them to forget and apparently for Louis C.K.'s fans nine months <laughs> exactly exactly um so how do we talk to these men who are like the good the good men without like 
or what what's your advice to to dealing with them? Well, I honestly don't care about alienating men yes. anymore. Um, and I think that I think that we all need to sort of let go of this idea that everything needs to be couched in really gentle terms because actually the violence that women experience is far from gentle and it's it has major impacts and implications on our lives. Um, you know, there's lots of things in this book that aren't just about the stuff that I read about. You know, there's a chapter on mental illness and the mental illness I've ex- like lived with my whole life. Um, the ways that, you know, as young girls, we're taught to hate ourselves and hate our bodies and, and express self-harm towards ourselves in the form of purging, you know, uh, cutting, dieting, like trying to whittle our bodies down to be as small as possible because we, we, ha- we can't take up more room than we're allowed. Um, and I think that the fact that we have to deal with all this stuff, and obviously it's, it's you know, I'm a white woman who, who has an enormous amount of privilege, so it's it's even worse for many more marginalised groups. And the fact that we have to deal with all of this oppression and abuse and violence being realities in our lives and yet somehow make it palatable for men when we speak about it is just an extra insult. I don't exactly. think that that should be asked of anyone. And I think that, you know, going back to that thing about it being okay to be angry, anyone who asks you to modify your anger about the reality of your life about things that have potentially probably happened to you or been done to you by other men, if they need to hear that through the lens of you being nice to them, then they're not really listening to you and we won't actually really get anywhere. Mm-hmm. So who cares if a man thinks that you hate him? Who cares if he responds to this anger by saying, oh, well, what's your problem? Like, you're my fucking problem. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're most of our problem. Yeah, that kind of answers my next question, which was like, when when you when did you realize it? It's like okay to be angry, and um, how are you able to harness it? And um, well, I used to try that? and be when I first started writing columns and started doing speaking. I used to be that woman that was like, I'd always issue a disclaimer at the mm-hmm. start, and I'd say, of course, not all men bad of course I know that most men are great like and this is what you hear all the time as well 99% of men are great it's like well there was never a survey done on that (laughs) (laughs) and if there was I would like to know what the scientific parameters were yeah because actually most men are not great and that doesn't mean that most men are bad it just means that most men are probably neutral and that's really the opposite of being bad or the the opposite of being bad or either way there's bad and neutral and neither one makes you good um, I would also probably, I see like maybe one guy in the audience and what also happens at events like this is people go, thank you so much for coming. Isn't it great that the man came? And it's almost <laughs> like as comical as having them stand up and mm-hmm. clap them. And the, this is the other reason why it's important not to placate, I think, is because then what happens is they go away feeling like, oh, I've really done my duty. Yeah. I'm a really good guy. And I've, I sat there and listened. But she wasn't really talking about me. Mm-hmm. So I can just go away and not think about any of this and not certainly not call my friends out yeah. when they say fucked up things because I'm a good guy and I wouldn't be friends with bad guys. They're just joking around or whatever. Um, so I just kind of got really sick of doing that because I, f- I not only was it humiliating, um, it sort of builds up you don't realise that it's humiliating at first and then it builds up and you kind of think, why do I have to do this all the time? Um, but also I just saw that it didn't work. It didn't actually, it certainly didn't stop. All the disclaimers I ever gave in articles not only took up about a quarter of the space that I had to write about other more important things, but it didn't stop men from writing to me mm-hmm. and describing in meticulous detail all of the things that should be done to me. Um, so I just got really sick and tired of it and I was sick and tired of feeling my whole life like I wasn't like I had to always make myself quieter and smaller Mm -hmm. and nicer and sweeter in order to make people listen to me and also there's only so many times like you abuse isn't amazing to receive it's not nice the first time someone writes to you and says something like horrifically violent where you're just like how could this possibly have come out of someone's mouth the 1500th time that they say it to you, you're you're just like, whatever, like it's just words now, you know? (laughs) Exactly. I I feel like, and you probably are the same, like there's 
the more you're kind of exposed, it's like exposure therapy. The Mm -hmm. more you're exposed to it, the more you realise that it doesn't have the power that it once held over you and also that nothing hurts more than actually letting them them silence you. Nothing hurts more than making the choice to stop talking because you're worried about what people will say. That to me, like that realisation kind of changed everything. Yeah, I think the same. Um, I, another thing that both of our books have in common is that they're both speaking to women mostly. And um, do you think that men get mad when things aren't for them? Definitely. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... And why is that, like, why should we still just continue to speak to women and not acknowledge? Let me tell you about (laughs) a little movie called Ghostbusters. (laughs) Um, What do you mean this movie's not about me? Um, in In the book, I have a... I talk about the Brock Turner rape trial. Mm-hmm. And what is so interesting to me and what kind of um, illustrates what you're saying is that in any other situation that would have that um, assault would have happened and afterwards people would have been filled with their own theories about what, what had really gone down. The fact that there were two eyewitnesses was not the key. It was the fact that it was two male eyewitnesses. So the two men who rode past and intervened and stopped the assault from going farther than it did um, n- were not only able to legitimise their testimony in front of a, a nation of people or an international conglomerate of people who are so used to disbelieving women, but they were also they provided a different role in the scenario for men. So if white men in particular are used to being centred in every kind of story and in every narrative this is my theory that one of the reasons why they get so angry when you talk to them about rape culture is because there's no one else in the story for them to be if you're talking about a rape and there's a survivor and a rapist well I'm used to being in the story at all times so you're saying that I'm the rapist yeah but in this case there were two male heroes and so they got to like absorb that story and say well of course in this situation I would be the men on the bikes so that's why I believe that this happened because I can frame it in my head a way that doesn't make me feel personally targeted. If those two eyewitnesses had been women, I guarantee you that a lot of the response that we would have been hearing online from fuckheads would be, well, let me tell you what I think really happened. This woman went on a date with him and he didn't want to see her again. And so these three women got together and concocted this little story and it's all a big revenge scheme because that's, of course, what women do. They get together and collude to decide how to ruin men's life through... Well, well, like as if somehow accusing men of rape is a guaranteed way to, (laughs) to get anything to happen to them. And, of course, all the money that you get for it too. Um... But, yeah, I think that that's, like, when there's no one else in the story for them to be, that's why a lot of them get so hostile about it. Yeah, I agree. They all think that they would be Jedis, but they're stormtroopers. Well, it's just that, like, (laughs) 95% of the media and everything is is centered on men, and it's, like, for men, and women just have to also like it. Like, oh, we, it's okay for us to still like that, the things that are for men. But, but it's not okay for, for some reason, for men to like the things that are for women. Yeah. And, and it's just like, it's the, the whole thing about whiteness being the baseline mm-hmm. and masculinity being the baseline. Um, years ago, I was doing some, uh, like a fill-in um, two weeks on community radio in Melbourne. And my role, there was three people and my role was the, the newsreader and also the one that kind of led the interviews and stuff. And I made it a point to try and bring in really diverse stories in each newsread. Um, and a lot of them were about women and people of colour. And the guy who was running the desk, he would, he's a classic example of like, nice, good guy, you know, would definitely count himself as being a progressive, um, would say that he certainly supported equality in all areas and at one point after I read one of these news bulletins he looked at me and just said in that like 
dripping with arrogance kind of way that some of them have. Do you think that you're exploiting your position as newsreader to try and get more stories about women in the news? <laughs> and I got really furious with him. And like he was saying it as a funny joke. And of course, my job was supposed to sit there and go, oh, don't be silly, Ollie. And then the next time round, of course, prove him wrong by not putting any stories about women in the news. But I got really mad. And, and how did you harness that anger? <laughs> well, I just sort of snapped back at him like, you know, what, what's wrong with you? Like, I, of course, I'm not exploiting it. And by the way, stories about women are just as important as stories about anyone else. But then the station manager came in after the show. And of course, I was the one who was in trouble because I'd disrupted the balance of breakfast radio. And people didn't want to listen to conflict in the morning. Um, I mean, I do, but <laughs> Con all conflict all the time. <laughs> but again, it's kind of like this assumption that, you know, these were all white men. It's this assumption that their experience is the universal experience. So even when someone s says something as, like, silly as when a straight man says something silly, you're like, oh, no one wants to see two men kissing. It's like, no, you don't want to see two men kissing because you're a homophobe. But don't speak for everyone else just because I think that this idea that somehow their experience is universal is also the problem. Yeah, they're just always the ones in the centre. Um, that's all the questions I have, but does anyone in the audience have a question? <laughs> well, she got angry and she's also a black woman and that's... Well, I don't think that I can speak fully to that experience because I'm white and I think that the fact that she's a black woman and she's a proud, strong black woman is, like, central to the reason why people want to tear her down and punish her for showing her anger. Um, what I will say is that uh, I'm from the country where that cartoonist drew that horrific cartoon, I don't even want to call it a cartoon, but drew that horrific representation of her and the response in Australia has just been, it's just excruciatingly embarrassing and shameful to see how the same kind of like narrative has played out where people who don't experience, certainly don't experience racism and in almost all cases don't experience sexism and definitely not the two together have decided for everyone else that this cartoon was neither of those things and that it's just about political correctness gone mad and, you know, that... I don't know if you hear that phrase a lot in America, oh, yeah. but all it's the time. thrown around all the time in Australia. And that newspaper in particular that it was that it was published in and he is published in, he, this is not his first time at the racist rodeo. You know, he has drawn horrible... Um, depictions of Aboriginal people in Australia and um, African members of the community who are being targeted currently by really conservative political rhetoric about, you know, just racist xenophobia, really. Um, and it's all to, all to do with drumming up anxiety and anger about migration and about asylum seekers. And it's just a really, like, toxic place to be at the moment. And so to see the way that people around him have doubled down on that and decided to explain the cartoon, explain the cartoon as being 
what they think it is because it makes them feel comfortable about it. And even today, the Herald Sun I, I saw has published a, a front page of all of his cartoons that have been deemed, like, edgy and offensive and um, done it in this huge display of... Uh, I hate to use the word solidarity in relation to this because that's not a word that should be applied to such dis disgusting toxicity, but... You know, there's just no consequences and there will be no consequences for him. And it's almost like now when I look at the Australian reaction in particular, it's I feel I feel even worse for Serena Williams that people are sharing because of all the commentary being shared, that cartoon is perpetually being shared. So it must just be popping up constantly in her field of vision. And to just see that and for other black women in particular to see that just constantly kind of being, even when people are like, this is terrible, just to see that image is, he's just done something so, like, horrific and violent, I think. One of the greatest pieces of I will. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. This is the way that um, domestic homicide often gets reported in Australia is yeah. is through the lens of how great the guy was. Same. Only if Same he's here. white. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for asking me a really easy question. <laughs> um, I don't have the answer to that because I'm just one person and I just have my own approach. For some people, running for political office will work. For other people, that's not the approach that will work for them. I think that having... Uh, it's a bit Pollyanna to say this, but like not giving up. It's really easy to feel really um, tired and like you just want to kind of... Sometimes I think, oh, it would be great to just be really ignorant. It would be great to be a woman against feminism, you know, but actually it would be awful. Mm -hmm. um, I think for me personally, the best strength that I get and the the motivation that I get to keep doing what I do, which is writing, um, is the strength that I get from other women. And it's forging really strong bonds and solidarity with other women who... N the kinds of women who never require you to explain where you're coming from, I mean, unless it's sort of, you know, in an exposition kind of way, but who never force you to justify where your anger is coming from, who you don't have to kind of um, illustrate to them in watered-down ways what where your feelings are placed you know I think that that's really powerful and again Alexandra and I were talking before about that um, conditioning that we all have as women that when a man enters the situation um, 
Certainly, I've had this conditioning since a child, so I'm still battling it. When a man enters the situation, you kind of just become aware that he's there, so you sort of start to modify your speech a little bit. You modify the intensity of what you might be talking about. You know, he sits down in a group of women and you all turn your knees towards him because, of course, you have to focus on him and whether or not he's interested in the conversation. And that was something that once I became aware that that's what I was doing, I tried really hard to stop doing. But it it illustrates to me how important it is to, to spend time with people who understand implicitly your situation. Um, so I don't really have an answer for what we can do. Um, some days I feel really optimistic and then other days I remember Donald Trump, Trump is president. So, and... Yeah, I don't know. Sorry. Just keep trying, I guess. We have time for one more question. So the two-party system in, in Australia is there's the Labor Party, and which is it's not really the equivalent of the Democrats, but it is the Progressive Unionist Party. Um, and then there's the Conservative Party, which is the Liberal Party. And the Labor Party, post Julia Gillard, did institute a 50% quota. So all of their pre-selected candidates have to be 50% male or female. Um, the Liberal Party hasn't followed suit with that. Uh, they don't like the word quotas, because as I heard one liberal white man explain the other day, big L liberal white man explain the other day, quotas are when you give a leg up to someone based on their gender or race, as if this is not something that's been happening to white men throughout all of history. Um, so they prefer now to talk about targets, so they have targets for gender equality. They've also just gone through a, a big leadership spill where the Prime Minister was changed in a coup. Um, and then all these women came out and talked about all the bullying that they've experienced being members of the party. So they talk about targets because then they can never actually reach them. They, they can just always talk about aiming for them. Um, but I don't know. I mean, Australian politics still tends to be extremely white, male-dominated. Um, you know, it's a country where when Tony Abbott was the Prime Minister, and Tony Abbott is a very conservative white male Catholic who used his power as health minister to veto bringing IU486 into the country. Um, so that's the kind of like politics that he has. And when he became prime minister, he appointed himself as minister for women, um, which got a huge kind of backlash in the country, um, rightly so. But less, less kind of stink was made about the fact that he also appointed himself minister for indigenous affairs. Um, He's now just been given this job by the new Liberal Prime Minister of special envoy to Indigenous communities, which is just another slap in the face to the fact that there's this very paternalistic, um, gross policies around Indigenous uh, sovereignty and Indigenous um, autonomy in our country that you know dates right back to colonisation. And I know that there's been similar issues in America, but you guys have a treaty and like Australian government won't do a treaty with Aboriginal people. So that's kind of the level that we're at. Um, so I don't know, like I, I guess my position is it's, it would be interesting to see more women, but I also think that we need to like massively decolonize the whiteness in the parliament too, because there's very few indigenous represent, uh, representatives. There's more and more now, but um, or the, we, we're starting to get more, but it's still like very white dominated. Um, and it's really hard to like the system is different there. You don't you don't just run for the position of um, you have to be pre-selected by your parties, and so then you're dealing with all the the internal kind of uh, like who's paid their dues and who's gonna who's gonna play the game once they're inside the system. And yeah, I don't know. More and more, I'm wondering if like 
we talk about getting more women in government and of course like ostensibly that's a good idea but it's kind of I'm kind of also interested in the idea that um, of thinking of different systems altogether like why is it that that minority groups have to work within the system that has been created specifically to keep them excluded from it why do they have to seek equality and power within that like it is possible that we could maybe as a community work towards something different. I mean, dismantling the Westminster system isn't going to happen overnight, but, um, yeah, I think that kind of working with what we've got is a good first step, but not that not being the end point. All right. I think that's all the time that we have. Thank you all so Thanks much for coming. for coming. And thank you so much, Alexandra yeah. and Noel and Skylight Books. It's been so great to be here. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.